0: ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer, and now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
1: Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we have a treat for you today. Our guest is Brad Feld, he is the author of Venture Deals. and. This book talks about how you can be smarter than your lawyer and the venture capitalist. Brad, welcome. Thanks for having me. So you have prepared folks to be smarter than you. That's my goal. (laughs) Well, that's terrific. And I can tell you, as someone who has raised money in the past, like I know many people say to you, I wish I had had this book in front of me.
0: Well, it really arose, you know, from our frustration that More entrepreneurs and many of the entrepreneurs we're working with didn't really understand all the dynamics around the deal. And, And this goes back when we wrote the first edition in 2004. It didn't seem right that the VCs had this massive informational advantage over the founders of companies that they were negotiating to invest in. And that informational advantage was you know, VC does lots and lots of deals using this term sheet and deal process and the the founders are encountering it for the first time. Even if the founders have done it before and encountering it for a second or third time, they still have this huge information disadvantage. Uh, And part of our motivation was to try to just, I don't want to be cliche too much and say level the playing field, but make it easier for entrepreneurs to understand what they were dealing with.
1: Right, right. Well, and the deal turns out better if you're both on the same page.
0: It turns out better, and it's a lot easier because, in fact, you're taking investment from a partner, your, your venture capitalist or your investor. They're going to be a long-term business partner. So theoretically, they should want you to feel good about the deal, and you should want them to feel good about the deal.
1: Right. So if you understand so you,
0: what actually matters, you can really get to a good place.
1: Brad, before we dive into the book, why don't you give our listeners your background? I think they would enjoy hearing that.
0: Sure. Today, I am a partner at a venture capital firm called Foundry Group. We're based in Boulder, Colorado, but we invest in early-stage companies in tech all over the U.S. We've got about 90 active companies, about a billion and a half dollars invested through our various funds. Uh, We also invest in other early-stage venture capital firms. And I also am a co-founder of an organization called Techstars, which was started in 2006 and runs accelerator programs all over the world we have about almost 30 programs now a year 10 companies go through each program so techstars is investing in about 300 companies a year and you know that started off in the u.s and it actually started in boulder but now is as you know far reaching as australia and europe and and asia so that's how i spend most of my time i got here by being an entrepreneur i started my first company when i was in in college In the 1980s. It was a self funded business with one partner. We grew it. It was a profitable company that we sold in 1993 to a public company called Ameridata. I worked with the public company for a couple of years. They were ultimately acquired by GE, and I left around that time. I started making angel investments with my own money in 1994 from the money that I had made from selling my first company. I did about 40 angel investments between 1994 and 1996 in software and internet companies at the beginning of the rise of the commercial internet. sort of accidentally became a venture capitalist, had been working with a number of folks on a part-time basis that were affiliated with a large company called SoftBank. That group plus me ended up starting a fund which had a lot of success in the late 90s. And then as the Internet bubble blew up, we had a lot of struggles, sort of got to a stable place. And in 2007, uh, with some of my partners from that previous fund, we started a new firm called Foundry Group that we've been growing ever since.
1: And tell me a little bit about your co-author, Jason.
0: Uh, Jason's one of my partners at Foundry Group. I met him in uh, 1999. He was originally at Cooley, which is a very large law firm that we work closely with, um, both on the company side and the investment side. And he was working for Cooley, but he ended up doing deals for SoftBank and for our investments. We brought him on to our firm originally as a general counsel as we were growing that firm. And then he started in the mid 2000s, like 2003, 2004, started doing investments. And when we started Foundry Group, it was initially started, all of us were equal partners and all of us were working on deals together, including Jason. So he joined Foundry or co-founded Foundry with me and our two other partners, Seth and Ryan, doing investments. So we've been working together now for uh, 17, 18 years.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, what a great background, and thank you so much for sharing that story. You know, you start off the book by talking about who the various players are, and there are clearly a ton of ways to get a company off the ground. I am a serial entrepreneur and actually got my start as an intrapreneur within what was then AMR and American Airlines and the Sabre Group. And I was fortunate enough to be leading a team that ended up doing my first acquisition from within the company, right? And then I was able to run it. And that was pretty cool because I got to go through all of the motions and the learning and going to Bob Crandall and the board and asking for money, but still having the safety and security uh, of a paycheck and then have certainly progressed beyond that to, you know, starting a couple of my own companies, one where we did raise money from an angel he doesn't like to be called an angel, but he was really investing individually, although he came out of a private equity firm. And my current firm, uh, we are still self-funding. So I've kind of seen a lot of different sides of this equation. So can you just give us the high points, maybe characterizing each of the options against the VC option? I know that's probably a book unto itself, but if you could just give us you know, kind of the thumbnail of the players.
0: I think you touched on a couple of things, and it's very, it's very powerful, is that there's lots of different ways to start a company, and the number of companies that actually raise money from VCs is relatively small. Interestingly, most of the principles in the book also apply to raising money from angels, of which today there are many, many more early-stage angel financings than there are VC financings, and sometimes that's a single angel, sometimes it's a bunch of angels, sometimes it's an organized group of them. You also have this phenomena, which is essentially, you know, bootstrapping your business and self-funding it like we did with my first business, where essentially your funding comes from, you know, doing work for customers. So I think one of the challenges for a founder of a company is it's very easy to fall into this view of, well, I have to, you know, do it this way because this is the way everybody's telling me. And what we try to do is lay out a little bit in the book. You know, in the context of raising angel or VC money, this is what it looks like. And here's the different participants, which, by the way, include people who are not your investors, but are part of the process, right? Your lawyers are part of the process. Mentors are part of the process. Really understanding how the pieces can fit together is important. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I thought it was interesting that you also mentioned the syndicate because what I didn't mention is I learned about the syndicate the hard way in that my angel from here in Tampa, you know, had come in and he, in my last business, he had put in about $2 million at the time that we went and sat down with what I later learned was the, the linchpin in his syndicate, which was Woody Johnson, who owns the New York Jets. And we sat in Woody's office and Woody said, you know, Don, how much have you got in? Don said $2 He said, put me down for $2 million. And a couple of, you know, his guys who worked for him also put in a small amount. And then two weeks later, I get a phone call, and my local investor, Don, says, Woody is out because it's just, your venture is just too far afield from what he normally invests in. And I'm thinking, no big deal. You'll go to one of your other buddies, right? And I didn't understand that Woody had invested in every single one of his deals. And then 10 or 12 other guys would come in because of Woody's endorsement. And oh, it was a real blow when I finally figured out that there was no other money coming in. And unfortunately for Don, he had to continue putting in money, you know, until we did finally decide to shut the business down right before the financial crash. So uh, that was my education about the syndicate.
0: I think that story is useful because the syndicates, whether it's angels or VCs, you tend to have a lot of signaling between who you're talking to and yeah. running a fundraising process, which we talk about early in the book, and understanding how to be effective at running that fundraising process is one where you don't get yourself into a position where you're overly dependent on a particular aspect of an outcome. The second you become, what I like to say, single threaded, your example was that. You had your lead investor, Don, he had his kind of go to validation. Sounds like in Woody. And once that happened, a bunch more dominoes fell. But if that didn't happen, none of those dominoes would fall. That's pretty single threaded, right? Versus having a situation where you have multiple options to choose from, all sort of advancing at the same time. And I think, especially with raising money from VCs, a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in a position where they have one option. And Mm -hmm. when you have one option, that's a really bad negotiating position. Your best position is when you have multiple options, including, in a lot of cases, not having to raise money from a new investor at a particular point, because your existing investor will keep supporting you, or you're in a position where you don't have to raise the capital right now.
1: Well, and, you know, it's funny, because it's one of the reasons why I've decided to self-fund at this particular juncture and to get the business far enough along that I don't need to raise money when I set out to raise money. And the the next chapter of your book, I love the first kind of subheader, which is do or do not, there is no try. And this whole section is on how to raise money. But I think I'd like to step back just a a second of when, and you really just spoke to this, of when do you raise money? And if you can bootstrap the business, even if it takes longer, is that still preferable? And, And does it bode better for the company
0: when it is time to raise money? There isn't an absolute answer. I think it has a lot to do with the desires and the preferences of the entrepreneur. I would say that in general, if you can bootstrap your company, you should. You should delay raising capital as long as you can because of a bunch of reasons. One is you'll learn a lot more and build a better foundation. You will have more to show a prospective investor than just your idea, in a lot of cases, especially if your business is working, not just will you be able to raise money more easily, you'll be able to get a better valuation. So you'll have to give up less of your company. You'll likely have more options. And you'll have also built into the fabric of your business, the muscle that doesn't require incremental financing. And so then your incremental financing or your additional financing that you raise helps accelerate your business. So you're actually using that money to grow faster versus using that money to get started. Now, there's a lot of types of businesses that need money to get to the product stage. You know, if you're a professional services business, or if you're starting something by yourself that doesn't have any overhead and you're both product and salesperson, or, you know, you have a small team of people who can go without salaries for a year or two, in those situations, you can make a lot more progress without additional capital. But if you're a small team of founders and you've got a product idea and you need to build the product you need to do the development to build the product you need to do some work to get that product out to market today the neat thing is you don't need to raise nearly as much money as you did that 10 or true. 15 years ago right so 10 or 15 years ago you might have needed to raise 5 or 10 million bucks just to get your product to market yeah, you need computers. You need infrastructure. You need a bunch of software. You have to purchase software to be able to build your software, whatever. And true in physical products as well. Today, whether it's a situation where you know you're using open source software to get started, and you got you know all you need is your computer, and you're doing everything with Amazon Web Services, or you're building a physical product and you do a Kickstarter and do a pre order campaign and raise a couple hundred thousand dollars from your customers to get going. So many more options, but at some point you're going to need to raise some money. And I like to use the line, your goal should be to raise the least amount of money you need to get to the next level. And you get to define both of those things, right? You get to define the amount you need, and you get to define what you think the next level is. And if you can minimize the amount that you need to raise at any given stage, your ability to raise more than you need is enhanced. Right.
1: And, Brad, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand, particularly if this is their first time raising money, what a distraction it can be and how much time it can take. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because you talk about the fundraising materials and the due diligence materials, and it's not – just the putting those together, but it's, you know, having your team fully conversant on them, finding the right VC, finding a lead, hopefully, who will bring others in. Can you talk a
0: little bit about that? Yeah, If you're a founder, you're the CEO of a company raising money, you should assume that you're going to need to spend 80% of your time on it over at least the next three to six month period. And in your best case, the three month period will be Uh, the length of time. That's your best case. The typical case is probably six month period of time. And when I say 80% of your brain uh, and 80% of your time, it's, it's not just the physical time, but the emotional energy that goes into it. The amount of time you're spending, getting ready to meet with new people, meeting with the new people, you know, the, the, the dynamics of, it's different than a sales pitch where you're trying to sell your product. Now you're actually trying to sell your vision and your company. And the level of emotional energy around that tends to be very high. Then in that time period, uh, lots of things will go in, in directions that you didn't expect. You described one of them when you were raising money, right? You thought you had $4 million bucks lined up and a bunch more that was going to follow. And all of a sudden you realized uh, you had $2 million and all the rest that was going to follow was nowhere to be found. So exactly. it's not this sort of predictable path. It's very, you know, changes a lot. So even if the actual amount of time you're spending is less, the cognitive overhead of it is high. And for your co-founders, they should recognize that they're going to have to be carrying the load of the business while you as the CEO is in that zone. They're going to have activities around the fundraising as well. But the best way to do it is if the CEO owns it and is able to realize that it's the vast majority of their time for a long period of time. Interestingly, right. once your business gets started and you raise money, especially if you raise money from a uh, venture or, or from angels, you're effectively always in a mode now where you're raising money, right? You raise money, that money's going to last you 12 months or 18 months. You don't wait. You know, let's say the, you raise enough money for 12 months. You don't wait 11 months and then start raising money again, right? <laughs> exactly. You're constantly communicating with your existing investor or investors with other people that you met you're meeting new investors, and probably about six months before you run out of money, you're likely going to start a fundraising process again that's more formalized and consume 80% of your mental and emotional energy, right? So part of the role of a CEO is to understand how to compartmentalize that and how to build the appropriate team and recognize that part of your role is this continuous process of raising money once you start down that path.
1: Right. Right. Now, you spend about four chapters and a significant chunk of the book talking about the term sheet. And I I don't want to get into a lot of detail because, really, if folks are interested in raising money and, in particular, in working with VCs, they must by this book. And so what I'd like, if you don't mind, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but I want you to just talk about the term sheet in general, perhaps on, at an overview level. And again, there is so much meat here and so much that people really need to understand thoroughly before they get in into raising money that we're not going to go into that level of detail today.
0: Well, the short summary is there are three things Three categories of terms in a term sheet. There are terms that are about the economics of your deal. There are terms about the control characteristics of your deal, who controls what, and there's everything else. Fundamentally, the only thing that you're negotiating is the economics of the deal and the control of the deal. The interesting part, and this is why the detail is so important, is that it's often confused that the economics is a simple thing. What's your valuation? How much am I buying for the dollars that go in the company? However, there's so many nuances, not just in how that works, but in other terms that impact the economic parameters and the Mm -hmm. trade-offs between them, the VC has mastery over, many entrepreneurs don't. So you might think you're doing a deal that has certain characteristics, but when you actually end up with the deal being done, they look differently. Control is the right. same thing. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs say, I don't want to give up control of my company. And, you know, that locks into, as long as I have 51% of the stock, I don't give up control of the company. <laughs> uh-uh. You know, there's a <laughs> whole bunch of other things going on <laughs> yeah. in those control terms. And by the way, the second you take money from somebody else, you've given up some amount of control, Yes. right? Yeah. You have another investor in the company. So understanding how all those terms play and which really are the important ones. And then the last is that there's a bunch of other terms in a term sheet. Many of them simply don't matter. But a good negotiator and a VC who's a good negotiator that realizes, you know, I wouldn't say a VC is a good negotiator. A style of negotiation is to use uh, terms that don't really matter that much as distractions against the terms that do matter. It's classic, you know, you know, I'll give on this thing and I'll give on that thing. And you realize after the fact that the thing the person gave you didn't matter. There's a cliche that's a wonderful one from probably a hundred years ago, which is you, when you negotiate, you're giving the sleeves off your vest. Uh And the reason the cliche is so good, right? Vest has no sleeves. So I'll give you the sleeves off my vest. And I, but I have, I have to have this thing over here. That's really important to me. And, you know, you think you just got some sleeves. Well, you got nothing, but you felt like you got something. So we try to, in this section, these four chapters or so, not just go deep into the technical characteristics of the terms, but talk very clearly about the interplay between them and which ones really matter to the founder and which ones they should focus on.
1: Well, and and one of the things I've noticed, Brad, and I've helped a number of other firms get ready to raise money, and if you are an entrepreneur and you feel like you're going to be wanting to raise money, you really need to have some good counsel and mentoring ahead of time, as I think you mentioned, the, the mentor role. And one of the things is on company structure to begin with and company record keeping, which I see a lot of companies doing very poorly and there's that age-old question of should I be an LLC, should I be a C-Corp or an S-Corp, and does it matter to the, the investing party? And so let's just talk about that for a second. Does structure matter or can it, it be it does. changed? Well,
0: it does and it can be changed. And, you know, most companies, when they get started, don't work particularly hard at getting this right. One of the things that's super important if you're going to raise money from VC is to have a lawyer – represent you that knows how to do these types of deals. Mm -hmm. There are lots of them, but then there are lots of people who, lots of lawyers who have no clue, and, you know, they're not just your cousin's estate plan lawyer that helps you out, you know, (laughs) yes, sure, I can help you out. There's a lot of people that do business law that don't actually understand angel and venture funded deals, so they actually hurt you more than help you. Fortunately, in 2017, there's an enormous amount of information available about this, not just on the web, but in books like uh, our book, Venture Deals that help you understand the pieces and help you, you know, quickly figure out whether the person has a clue or not. In terms of the specific question, most venture back companies are C-corps, and they're C-corps because they can't be S-corps. S-corps can't have two different classes of stock, and almost all venture back companies have uh, preferred stock and common stock. Yes. So by definition, the S-corp approach doesn't work. You can be an LLC, And there are some cases where companies are LLCs, and it's quite common that you're an LLC early on. But by the time you get to raising money from VCs, most VCs, for a variety of reasons, some technical, some other, much prefer that the company be a C-corp for their own ownership and reporting dynamics with their investors, with the VCs' investors. So in general, if you're getting started and you think you're going to raise capital, either just bite the bullet from the beginning and be a C-Corp or be an LLC knowing that when you do raise capital, you're going to have to flip into a C-Corp.
1: Well, and check with your state because I live in the state of Florida, and Florida is very, very friendly to entrepreneurs. And they have a mechanism whereby you can flip from an LLC into a C-Corp, you know, for very little cost. And so – you know, I, th- I think each each individual needs to check their own situation. And again, to your point, having an attorney who is well-versed in that is
0: super important. One other subtle thing here that, that we talk about in the book is there is a high likelihood that if you raise venture, regardless of where your company is located, the investors will want you to have it incorporated in Delaware. And some people are like, well, Why? And the reason is that Delaware corporate law is probably the best-defined corporate law in the country, and the rules around what you have to do and and what works and what doesn't is extremely well-defined from not just a structural Mm -hmm. perspective, but also a legal perspective. And so as a VC in Boulder, Colorado, investing in companies all over the U.S., it's very easy for me to do something in Delaware because I understand the rules. Exactly. It's much harder for me to do something with a company that's a Florida incorporated company because I don't necessarily know the, the state rules. The last is that the Delaware rules tend to be uh, simple and very well-defined for companies and for investors and are also very uh, corporate. I, would, I don't want to say corporate friendly, but very corporate clean. Yes. So, you know, you're not in this place where there's a lot of ambiguity where many of the states have a lot of ambiguity about the rights and as a result when there's litigation there isn't as much understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And so That's the a variability. Really point,
1: Brad. Great point. You also talk about a couple of other alternatives and and again I, I've lived through each of these. So it's it's uh, it will be fun to hear your perspective. So convertible debt. When I first started my first venture, I had a partner and we both were putting in an equal amount of capital. And then when it was time to raise money, she went out and looked for money. I was looking for money. She found money, but they said she had to be the CEO. I had a team who you know, just wasn't interested in that. They wanted me to be the CEO of the company. And so I ended up raising the money and then buying her out. And I did that with a convertible note from the individual who ended up becoming the angel investor, but he wasn't ready to invest because he needed to do a significant amount of due diligence on the technology that we were building. And so he suggested the convertible instrument to loan me the money and then to be able to later convert that into equity let's just focus on that for a minute because I do want to touch on crowdfunding as well. But let's talk about the arguments for and against convertible debt.
0: Sure. And I would tell people to generally think of convertible debt as a proxy for an equity investment. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if you raise money on a convertible debt instrument, what you're doing is you are raising debt, but the depending on the terms and how they're written, Usually, the investor has the option to convert it into equity at some specified price in some specified time frame. So, the actual terms of convertible debt in the last five years have gotten more complicated because it used to be a simple way for a VC or an investor to say, "Look, I don't want to price. You know, let's not worry about pricing the deal right now. Uh, here's some money. You need the money." we'll put it in convertible debt. And when the round happens, we'll convert into equity at a discount to the round, 20%, maybe 30% discount. And the right. interest rate will be be as low as we can have. It's usually 6 or 8%. It's not because they're trying to get a debt return. They want equity. But they're just giving you the money before the round equity round comes together. The thing that has changed in the last five or so years is that an increasing number of early rounds from angels and even some VCs are done as convertible debt because there's this perception that they can be done quicker. There's also the lack of pricing. In other words, you're not having to agree to a price. Right. Or the amounts being invested by the individual investors are relatively small, you yeah. $25,000, 100000 right. maybe even a quarter of a million. And so you don't want to do all the legal work for an equity financing for that amount of money. What's happened is that the terms of a convertible debt round have expanded to start to mirror the terms of an equity round because mm-hmm. they're being used in this way. And so it's very important if you do a convertible debt round that as an entrepreneur, you understand the nuances of the, the half a dozen or so important terms again versus mm-hmm. it's the quick way to get money in your business sort of from an angel on a handshake that is just going to convert in the next round. As an can an be dangerous? Yeah, It absolutely can be dangerous. Here's examples of uh, things that can, can be dangerous. It is debt. And so if you have an angel investor and the terms are set up in such a way that the angel investor has the ability to determine when that debt converts, and you don't have, as the founder, control over some of those dynamics – You could find yourself in a position where that debt's always outstanding. You could find yourself in a position, if you have no money and you have no source of new financings that that debt investor might say, hey, you need to pay me back, so we need to shut this company down or sell this company to pay me back. One of the interesting things about angel investors is they're supposed to be, I mean, they're they're called angel investors for a reason, right? They're supposed to be angels. There are plenty of angel investors who should just be called devils. Right? They're not approaching it from the standpoint of trying to support the founder. And so in equity, you know, the terms are really well defined. In debt, there's often lots of uh, looseness in it and that can get in the way in lots of different places. As VCs, we've generally decided that for anything that's a meaningful investment for us, we almost always want to do equity. I can't think of a time where we did a debt financing from us where we wrote a check that was more than $100,000 or something like that. And in cases where we have in, uh, entrepreneurs who are raising $5 million on a convertible debt round, that's typically not interesting to us because it means something is going on between the founders and the investors sort of saying, hey, we're in this together. Let's go. Interesting. The last comment I'd make on convertible debt is there is misalignment in convertible debt, right? Depending on the terms, you have money from an investor, and if they get a discount on the next round, and that's the terms, you could imagine that they would want the next round price to be low because they get yeah. it at a lower valuation. Whereas if you price the round now and say, look, we are all agreeing that you know this is equity at this round, theoretically, your investor should want your next round to be much higher, So you've got alignment when you have equity because you're both owners of the company. In the case where your debt is converting into equity, you might have some misalignment. This comes back to understanding the terms in some detail. And there are ways in debt to create more alignment. There's something called a cap, which is where you determine what the max price of the conversion would be. All of this stuff, you just have to go very deep on and understand clearly what the pros and cons are. Right, right.
1: And I want to just touch on crowdfunding. I don't want to spend a lot of time because I want to get to the meat of how venture capital funds work. And again, I just came off of, of a product crowdfunding campaign and learned the very, very painful lesson that the bulk of the people who end up buying your product in a product crowdfunding campaign, such as Kickstarter or Indiegogo or any one of those, there are people that you know anyway who saw that you were raising money that way and are showing their support of you. And quite frankly, that's not very useful because you could set up your own product pre-sale site and have people come on and pay via PayPal and really accomplish the same thing. And I know that there are also a whole raft of fairly new equity crowdfunding sites that have been coming into the marketplace. And again, I think people are easily wooed by those thinking that it's going to be an easier way to raise money. And you know, at least my first brush with it, I think that ain't necessarily so.
0: I think it's well said. It has some interesting opportunities, but plenty of challenges. I think you did a good job of separating the two approaches to crowdfunding. I think people talk about crowdfunding as a single thing, but they're really different. There is this notion of product crowdfunding, a la Kickstarter, which is the one of the first and sort of the most visible and largest communities for that. And then there's equity crowdfunding a la AngelList and others like AngelList. The difference is in product crowdfunding, you're essentially doing what you described as a pre order campaign. You know, you're putting up information about your product and you're giving people an opportunity to buy your product in advance of the product being built, and you get the cash and then. You build the product and you deliver it. Equity crowdfunding, you're essentially raising equity and investment in your business from investors in the community and using essentially the marketplace of the equity crowdfunder to attract and interact with prospective investors. The descriptions of those two things are very different. One of the problems and challenges, I think, is that a lot of people say, oh, crowdfunding, this is a great new thing. And they don't actually really understand the strengths and weaknesses of it. On the product crowdfunding side, you describe some weaknesses, which is people already know you. You could just do a pre-sale site and not have to you know, pay the 8 or 10% that the crowdfunding site charges you from the revenue you collect. The flip side is if you look at Kickstarter, and you're actually trying to do more than just pre-sell a product. You're trying to create a community of early customers. And that community of early customers would include that you're promoting things other than just your product, right? You, you know, you have multiple offers for your product, but you have other things that you're doing that you can raise money for. So for example, you know, you could have higher tiers of your product crowdfunding campaign. Right. Uh, let's say your product cost $199, you could have a $500 level where somebody can buy four of your product and get some other stuff. You could have a $1,000 level where you, in addition to buying your product, uh, they get two hours of your time via video conference to walk through a bunch of things. For $10,000, you'll fly out and spend a day at their office working with them on whatever. So if you sort of poke around Kickstarter, you see some of the more successful Kickstarter campaigns are not just pre-selling a product. Uh, The other benefit of product crowdfunding is that the platforms, whether it be Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or something else, tend to have very, very broad reach and good ways to promote across other networks, whether it's your social network or the people who are your pre-order campaign social network. However, it's critical that you, as the person doing the product crowdfunding, is doing all that work to generate the promotion, or else you'll end up with what you described.
1: Well, and there are a whole bunch of bottom feeders, by the way, that come out of the woodwork telling you that they know how to drive traffic to your particular campaign. And I did explore a couple of those. Fortunately, didn't spend a lot of money.
0: I'm glad you didn't. One of the jokes about crowdfunding is the very first thing that happened on the equity crowdfunding side, which is the other side of it, when the JOBS Act passed in 2012, which Uh, essentially set the framework up for equity crowdfunding, didn't necessarily put all the rules in place, uh, but enabled pieces of it. And then over the next three or four years, uh, the SEC has finalized the rules around it, which are quite complicated. And we go, you know, we have good summary in the book of how the different pieces work. The companies that were the most successful early crowdfunding companies were consultants who charged you $129 to learn how to do crowdfunding. And, you know, there was, you know, sort of a Cambrian explosion of these, you know, right. thousand people doing seminars and this sort of stuff. And basically the message was, pay me $129, come to my seminar. Sorry, there's no way to do this yet, but in the future it will work this way. <laughs> so, so, you know, like, like, like so many other things, you know, buyer beware. There's, there's a, lot of, exactly. a lot of people out in the world who will charge you money. For very little value, and if you're an entrepreneur who has very little money and you're trying to start a business, just filter aggressively. Make sure you're getting what you think you're, you're getting when you uh,
1: partner exactly. with somebody. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I definitely have those scars to show. Well, let's move on to the core of the matter, which is how venture capital funds work. And you talked about how the venture capital funds themselves are an investment, which maybe people don't really understand that. They think it's a couple of rich people who get together and decide to put their money in, but don't realize that it actually has that whole investment
0: structure behind it yeah this is a section of the book that surprised us with its popularity when we first wrote it. We didn't realize that the the whole process is mysterious but uh, of, of raising money from venture capitalists, but the vast majority of, of entrepreneurs had no idea how venture capital funds themselves actually worked. Yes the first thing to determine and to understand is the difference between our definition of an angel investor and a venture capital investor. An angel investor is a person investing their own money, so uh, you know in my intro I said I invested uh in 40 companies with my own money between 1994 and 1996 I was an angel investor I was typically writing a 25 to 50,000 dollar check I'd often bring a bunch of my friends in the syndicate like you described and you know we'd raise the company would raise you know a quarter of a million 500,000 from my gang but I was just investing the 25,000 that was what I was essentially managing and all my friends were doing their own investment As a venture capital firm, what you do is you go out and you raise a fund. That fund includes some of your own money. So VCs are investors in their own funds, but it also includes money from what are called limited partners that are our investors. And the limited partners can be public pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, university endowments. They can also be high net worth individuals that want to invest in a fund rather than make a bunch of individual investments. They can also be something called a fund of funds, which is funds that are especially created to take, uh, again, money from this population of people that are trying to get access to to venture capital and invest those in venture capital funds. Uh, You also have other investors, sovereign wealth funds. Many countries have very, very large uh, pension or annuity funds, and they allocate some of that to be investments in venture capital funds. So as an example, uh, Foundry Group, uh, our early-stage funds, we have four of them starting in 2007, one in 2010, one in 2013, one in 2016. We have about 20 investors in each fund, our, our LPs, or limited partners, mm-hmm. and they're in those categories of people I described. They invest anywhere between I think the smallest investor we have is a couple of million, maybe $3 million. And I think the largest investor we have in those funds is $40 million. When they invest in our fund, let's say the 2016 fund that we raised at the end of 2015, we then from that fund are going to invest in about 30 companies. And that's our what we call our portfolio from that fund. Mm -hmm. When we raise the fund, it's not that... Uh, all of our investors wire us the money, right? We went, raised a $225 million fund, and our commitment to that fund uh, was, an, as partners, was another $7 million. So it ends up being about a $232 million fund. Our, our investors didn't wire us the money on day one; they made the commitment, and then we call the capital over time as we're investing in companies. We invest in the companies through one investment entity. So when we invest, it's not that we have 20 different things. We have our fund as the investor. We actively manage the company investment. You know, we sit on the board. But we do have investors, and we have an advisory board, and we communicate to them about what's going on, and we interact with them as partners in in our business.
1: But do they have the right to put their thumb up or down on an individual investment, or do, in that commitment, are they entrusting to you the decision-making process?
0: Number two. So, So they've entrusted us to make the decisions. Their decision is every time we raise a new fund. So if they don't like the way we're investing or our performance is you know, either we're doing something different than we said we do, or they look at our performance and say, eh, you guys kind of soft." This is not really what we wanted. <laughs> so they're in looking long-term. at your
1: exits from the previous fund.
0: They're, they're much. looking at the fund and recognize that we're early stage, so they have to make a decision. And in, in our case, every three years, when our investors had to make a decision on the 2010 fund, they were evaluating: Did we do what we said we do when we raised our 2007 fund? Well, were we communicating pretty well then? because
1: of the market that you were facing in those years.
0: Well, but we could do what we said we were going to do in that yeah. context, right? Yeah. So were we consistent with our strategy? Because when they're investing in a fund as an institution, they're typically viewing it as a long-term commitment, not as a short-term mm-hmm. commitment. But their moment of time to choose is when they decide to invest in the next fund. The other thing that's useful and interesting sort of around this dynamic is Different venture firms interact with their investors or their LPs different ways. Some of them view them as true partners and engage with them and want them to be uh, intellectually engaged with what they're doing. Others want to keep them at a distance. And there are cultural differences between types of firms. And then LPs have different dynamics. Some LPs like to be very involved because they enjoy the types of funds and the people that they're investing. Others view it as more of an asset management process. And they're trying to pick the best farms. So that's the LP side of it. The partner side of it and our funds, uh, our early stage funds, I have uh, three other partners, Seth, Jason, and Ryan. Uh, we're all equal partners. We all decide together on things. We all work on everything together. And we have no junior people in our firm. We don't have associates or principals or entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. or residents. It's, it's just us. Because we came from an environment, our previous firm had a lot of people and had a lot of junior people and had scaled up and uh, had a lot of people that were operating in terms of their role. They were you know, business development person or recruiting people to help the companies. And when we started our firm, we very deliberately decided to take this approach. That's one of many different types of approaches. And we touch on a number of them in the book, not just the types of approach, right? At the other end of the spectrum, be a firm that has um, much more of a hierarchical relationship, maybe one or two senior partners or, you know, a senior partnership team of three or four, then junior partners, you know, that are more, and then maybe some associates and analysts and people doing lots of work, and they might be in multiple locations. So there isn't a single archetype for a venture firm. In fact, I like to say that individual VCs, there isn't a single archetype. I like to think of them as Dungeons and Dragons characters. Some are wizards and some are elves and some are orcs and some are dwarves. And they all have different skill levels and they all have different experiences and they all have different magic powers. And a firm is a collection of these different types of people. And their rules for engagement internally are really important for the founder to understand. Are they equal partners or does somebody make Mm -hmm. the decision? How they interact with you after they make the investment is important to understand as well, oh, because you're totally. going to be living with them for uh, for a very long time, and the incentives and motivations that they have based on where they are in their firm and how their firm is doing can have a lot of impact on your company. And oh, so, completely. And uh, I, I again, want to
1: interject there, Brad, because you know my first investment, as I mentioned, was with. Someone who I call an angel just because he was an individual, he actually came out of the private equity world, but he did not have the entrepreneurial experience. And one of the things he did, and, and we're still very good friends today, by the way, but he ended up putting in $6 million of his money. I put in a million of my own. But he doled out that $6 million a week at a time. And yeah. it. I, I had hired... <laughs> no, Oh, my God. I mean, I call it, you know, like slow drip torture. And I had hired the head of uh, AOL Travel to come in and be our chief operating officer. And I had hired the head of EDS Travel and Transportation to be the CEO. And, you know, I had a, a team in place, but it was totally debilitating to them to have that lack of trust and we had a business plan, but not being able to live to that plan. So I I do want to bring up that the culture that you talk about and the mechanism for injecting capital because it you're right, just like it doesn't all come into you when you raise the fund, when you raise $6 $6 million, $10 million, generally there are milestones, right? And the money comes in at, at varying phases, but it's not every week that you have to go and ask daddy for more money. And then he says, what did you do with the money I gave you last week, right? When you had already detailed everything. So can you talk just a little bit about how venture capitalists actually make money? Because you talked just now about these firms that have tons of overhead Right, and then characterizing that back against what sounds like the group of wizards at your firm, right, that don't have a lot of minions running around, so you don't have a lot of overhead, and so you can be smarter about what you do.
0: There's multiple ways that uh, uh, VCs uh, make money. The the primary way uh, that a firm makes money and where the real return comes from is from what is called a carried interest on successful investments. So or on the fund. So, you know, assume and by the way, the typical percentage split with investors is an eighty-20 split where the, the LPs get eighty percent and the VCs get twenty percent. Sometimes you'll mm-hmm. see that number be a seventy-thirty split or, or seventy-five-25. And the idea is that in the fund, let's say it's a hundred million dollar fund, first step is you return all the capital. So you don't split it eighty-twenty until you've returned the hundred million. And right. then when you return the hundred million, for the next $100 million of return, 80% goes to the LPs, 20% goes to the, the VCs.
1: Right. So That's this is the profits. You're not waiting for the companies to sell to get the money out.
0: Well, no, you, you are. You're, this is the profits from the fund, from the uh-huh. investment. So the way the way that you generate those returns is usually through two mechanisms, either the sale of a company or a company going public, and then the fund liquidating its public investment. It's, Got it. it's not If a company is profitable, the company generally reinvests uh, the profits or keeps the profits in the company. So it's very unusual for a venture-backed company to be profitable and distribute the profits to investors. It does happen in certain cases, but usually that outcome for the investors comes from either a sale of the company or an IPO. It's important to recognize that it's not on a company-by-company basis that the venture capitalists get paid. It's on their fund. And so you, in a fund, will have some companies that fail and are worth zero, and you'll have some companies that are successful and have multiples of the paid-in capital. And sort of the baseline of a successful venture fund is that you end up, I would say, successful is a tricky word, a, a a really good outcome versus successful for a venture fund over about a 10 year period is that the fund returns on a net basis about three times back to the investor. So if an investor gives you a dollar, they get back $3. The mathematics around that and the way that the scorekeeping happens, uh, we talk about a little bit in the book, but fundamentally, if you get rid of all the complexity of, you know, internal rate of return and gross return versus net return, the interesting thing is if I gave you a dollar, how much did you give me back? The other revenue stream for venture firms is called a management fee. And that management fee typically is about 2%. It could be somewhere between 1% and 2.5%, depending on the size of the fund. And it's paid annually and it comes out of the investment. So, this is a very important sort of nuance around it is that if you're a $100 million venture fund and you have roughly a 10 year life and you're a 2% management fee, to manage that hundred million, you get roughly a two million dollar fee each year, and that pays your mm-hmm. salary, your office, your staff, you know, anything else you want to do. Obviously, the bigger the fund, the bigger that number. If you're a twenty million dollar fund, you have a much smaller number in terms of that. But that's how you decide right. what to do with it. There are there's an interesting and very subtle nuance in how that all works. So if you assume a two percent fee over ten years, that's twenty million bucks. It turns out to be a little bit on the hundred million dollar fund. It turns out to be a little bit less because of how the fees tend to work. So let's say it's fifteen million bucks. If I have a hundred million dollar fund and fifteen million of it is my fee, I only have eighty five million to invest. Exactly. So now I have to make my three dollars back to my investor off of eighty five million of cash. Mm-hmm. There's a notion called recycling where as you get returns, you invest all the way up to the full 100%. So essentially, your ability to generate bigger returns, theoretically, should be off of more investment. Oh, of course. And for a venture fund, you should be motivated to recycle. And so that if an investor gives me a dollar, I've actually invested a dollar, not just $0.85 of a dollar. There's a lot more subtleties in that as well, because remember, some of our own money is in the fund. So it's not just that we're taking a fee and investing somebody else's Mm -hmm. money, but we're actually investors in that fund dynamic as well. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And for an entrepreneur, the simplest way to think about it is the best, uh, I just give you a lot of complexity, the best VCs are focused on maximizing the amount of return they generate off of the fund that they've invested. And if they're doing that well, what they're doing is the things they think will help the companies generate the best exit outcomes, which should be aligned with the entrepreneur's goal. Exactly. You
1: know, Brad, there is so much meat in this book. We could spend another hour talking about this. And there's so many chapters of the book that we haven't even delved into at all. I just want to share with our listeners That there is a whole section on negotiation tactics, on how to raise money the right way, the different issues that you run into at different financing stages. So uh, Brad had mentioned that they do a fair amount of seed and early stage deals. There are other firms that only focus on mid to late stage deals. We already talked about the term sheet earlier in the book and there were actually four chapters on that. Then there's a whole chapter about letters of intent and what's important in getting captured there, why do term sheets even exist, and then a whole section on the legal things that every entrepreneur should know. And as Brad had mentioned, finding an attorney who has experience in this is paramount. You will waste so much money educating someone who hasn't had this experience. It's better sometimes just to pay what you need to pay for someone who who brings that experience. Brad, one of the other things that I did want to touch on real quickly before we wrap up is you talked about being in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm actually going to be in Denver uh, in two weeks to meet with a couple of clients out there. But we also have the issue, as entrepreneurs, of, you know, again, I live here in Tampa, and there, there's a fairly robust capital environment here, but they don't always focus on early stage. And they're much more comfortable in certain genres of companies, you know, maybe in hospitality or in in hard goods and things that they can actually see and touch and maybe not so comfortable with tech or, or service industries. For your firm, do you focus on specific industries? And clearly you said that you're involved in lots of different geographies, but how do you manage a team that isn't physically where you can get to them frequently?
0: Yeah, we have a a very clearly articulated strategy that we orient around a set of themes. And if you're interested, uh, somebody can go to foundrygroup.com, our website, and just click on the themes button. And, We use these themes as a filter and our goal is to pass on everything in 60 seconds that has no chance of us investing in it. So we're happy to, you know, interact with lots and lots of people, but we don't want to spend, we don't want to waste the founder's time if there's a low probability of uh, our investing. So we use for us, we use the themes as a filter. If you don't fit in the theme, even if you're an amazing founder, you've had multiple successes before, that's okay. We're not going to be a good fit for you. And, and our general view is our job is not to invest in every potentially great company. It's to make 10 investments a year that we think could be great, 10 new investments mm-hmm. a year that we think could be great. So we use the themes. If you've raised more than $5 million, you're too late for us. So we invest early, but we don't have to be the first money in. We, as you mentioned, we invest anywhere in the US, but we don't have to be uh, physically proximate to you. And then if the thing you're working on gets through those themes, we focus on three specific things. Number one is, do we have an affinity for the product you're working on? We don't have to be users, but we have to care about it, partly because we've invested over our our career in many things that we didn't really care about. And we've just decided that because we're only doing 10 new investments a year, we want to only invest in products that we care about. The second is that the founders have to be obsessed about the product. They have to have been put on planet Earth to do the thing they're doing. And we use the word obsession very deliberately instead of the word passion. Mm-hmm. I think passion yeah, is, I love it. Is, is, a, is a crazy overused word. I like to say, you know, leave passion in the bedroom. There's a good place for it. In business, it's way too easy to fake it. And right. the idea of obsession is a healthy obsession. It doesn't mean that you can't have any other things going on in your life. But this thing that you're working on is so central to your thinking. The last is that the founders have to want us to be their investors as much as we want to be investors in their company. Mm. We know we're entering into a long-term relationship and that's, that's critically important to us. But yeah, it has to be that. bi-directional. Mm-hmm. The last piece of it is the thing you said is how can we deal with from Boulder, Colorado uh, investments all over the country? There used to be conventional wisdom that if you're an early stage investor, you had to be physically proximate to the companies that you invested in. Mm -hmm. I started investing over 20 years ago. I never believed that. So, uh, you know, I started investing when I lived in Boston and I invested at a seed level in companies in Boston, New York and Seattle, because I had a big network there from work I'd done with Microsoft, the Bay Area, LA, and I traveled a lot. And, you know, I was able to help entrepreneurs from a distance, and I was able mm-hmm. to engage in, in in that way. And I was willing to, to travel and to be involved from that perspective. What is interesting is that most entrepreneurs, in some ways, would actually not be physically proximate to their investor. It's You don't <laughs> need your investor coming to your office every week and checking <laughs> in on you. Exactly. Um, that's not... It's not really a healthy investor-founder relationship. No, and so I think uh, as as an investor, you can think about geography differently, and as a founder, you recognize that, especially as you know, communication is so much better in 2017. I mean, I'm on video conference continuously throughout the day uh, with different companies, whereas you know, 17 years ago, it was all telephone. There's a lot more distributed teams, so you're trying to coordinate distributed teams, and so you end up integrating different kinds of communication mechanisms. But it is a philosophical approach. There are lots and lots of VCs and lots of investors who don't want to invest. Their strategy is to invest in companies proximate to them, and understanding the, the VC strategy is really important because if you're trying to get an investor to do something that's outside their strategy or outside their norm, you're wasting your time as a founder. You should go focus on Mm -hmm. finding investors who are going to align with what you're looking for and what you want to do. Totally agree.
1: Totally agree. Well, Brad, it has been amazing. And again, I have got a zillion more questions. So if people want to follow you or to send you questions perhaps for your next book or your next edition of
0: this book, how can they get in touch with you? Super easy. Uh, my email is brad at Feld, and I try to respond to whatever comes in. My only request is start with the punchline. I get lots of emails, and it's a lot easier to be responsive. <laughs> if, you know, the, the first couple of sentences actually tell me what, uh, what you care about. I'm on Twitter at F-E-F-E-L-D. Venture Deals has a companion website, with a lot of content on it, adventuredeals.com. And then I've also written a number of other books, and the companion website for those other books is startuprev.com. So those are probably the easiest ways to Perfect. get in touch and uh, communicate with me.
1: Wonderful. So, again, we've been talking with Brad Feld. The book is called Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist. Brad thanks so much and we really appreciate all of the wisdom that you've shared and again if you're raising money you gotta go get this book thanks
0: Thanks
1: so much yeah yeah it was and so go out and change your game today and thanks so much for participating
0: you've been listening to the game changer ideas inspiration innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.